And this is Viewpoints. Todd Vanderheden here with you. Great to have you along for smart radio and fun radio. Radio to get you thinking and radio to get you talking. We do that each and every weekend right here on the show. A major shakeup this week, and we're going to start with that. Kevin O'Leary out of the race to lead the Conservative Party of Canada. Out of the race as fast as he was in. O'Leary is many things. He's a businessman. He's a television host. He's an author. He's larger than life. Some call him a bully. Others say he is refreshingly honest. Whatever you think of him, he's definitely a personality. What he won't be ever is Prime Minister of Canada, a man dubbed the Trump of the North, with a big surprise that he just can't win the race because of his Quebec problem, except that's not really a big surprise if you think about it, because Kevin O'Leary always had a Quebec problem, starting with the fact that although he was born in Quebec, he never learned French. He seemed to think the mere fact of being born in Montreal in 1954 and visiting now and then would somehow be enough to win the hearts and minds of Quebecers, arguably a huge misread of Quebec politics in 2017. Interestingly, he's throwing his support behind a Quebec MP, Maxime Bernier from the Beauce region of Quebec, who is now the obvious frontrunner. By the way, the field still very crowded, 13 candidates, and we've got about a month to go until a Conservative Party leader is chosen. Fred Litwin is my guest on the line in Ottawa. He's a Conservative himself. He's author of the book Conservative Confidential, Inside the Fabulous Blue Tent. Fred, he was the frontrunner. Now he's out. What do you think? Well, I think he he realized that the numbers just weren't there. I mean, first, he, he joined the race late, so it didn't give him enough time to sell enough memberships um, to really win on the first ballot. And I think he realized that if he couldn't win on the first ballot, and he had no, uh, he was very, he didn't have anybody who would vote from second choice, third choice. He was nobody's even fifth choice. So he realized he couldn't win on the first ballot, so time to get out, go home. Do you think this was a serious run on his part? I mean, was he really after this? I don't know, you know. I don't know whether he realized what it takes to really run a a national political party in Canada. I don't know whether he was really up for the work of traveling across the country and going to small towns and cities and visiting all sorts of local groups. I don't know whether that's what he really wants to do. And so that may have been part of it, realizing, you know, I really actually probably don't even want this job. Is it possible this was a vanity project, Fred? Definitely a vanity project. I mean, my, my God, I mean, he's all about vanity. I mean, he loves to hear himself talk. Um, his whole life has been built around vanity, so this was another one of those projects. But uh, again, I think he bit off more than he could chew and didn't really understand the whole political world. I wonder if you think that, you know, based on his own calculus, this is still a win, even though he's quit the race, because... His brand has increased as a result of being in this for the last three-plus months. Yeah, I think, I think he's happy. He definitely improved his brand in, in Canada. He's got a lot of young supporters, although some of them are not really too happy with him right now. Um, he probably had a lot of fun along the way. He didn't do that much. I mean, he really wasn't in it for a long time. Didn't do uh, all that much traveling. He wasn't in all the debates. So probably it was, you know, small investment, uh, a lot of fun. And now he can go back to what he does best and be on his TV shows in the States. Fred Litwin is my guest. He is the author of Conservative Confidential, Inside the Fabulous Blue Tent, a conservative himself. We're talking about Kevin O'Leary jumping out of the race to lead the conservatives. Big shakeup now. 
there's something else. I mean, he came across often, as you know, Fred, as, you know, erratic or his language was perhaps over the top. I mean, he called Justin Trudeau a disaster, that he was running a government full of incompetent and mediocre leaders. Do you think he misjudged what Canadians want from their politicians? I don't know if he really misjudged that because we never got to that point. I think he misjudged conservatives. Um, I, I, I was taken, if you looked at some of his comments on the Canadian military and foreign policy, they sounded like they were being uttered from a, an NDP candidate. He didn't reach conservatives. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many people I've met who, you know, they would have put him on 13th spot on their ballot. Um, you either were going to vote for him, number one, or not vote for him at all. And so it was he didn't understand conservatives. I know you've talked to a lot of conservatives over the past couple of months as this race was moving forward. Was there also a sense that he was a showman and that was a problem for people? I, I don't know if that was a problem. I think they could accept a good, a good showman who really understood policy. I, I think that, that his statements bothered people. I think that he was somewhat of a lightweight. Um, um, that bothered people. He didn't have a history of being with the Conservative Party. All of a sudden, he's a member. So I think that bothered a lot of people. There are a whole variety of things, and, and he just wasn't seen as being one of us. In the press conference that was held on Wednesday, he talked about this Quebec problem. And, and what some of the reporters in the room were asking is, didn't you always have a Quebec problem? I mean, this is not new. Why now? He, he, he always had a Quebec problem. He knew it. I think he, I think he probably thought uh, up front... He could sell enough memberships that he can get by without Quebec. I think that's what he thought. Now it's a convenient excuse to say he's getting out of the race. Um, but, you know, it's true. He couldn't get traction in Quebec. They weren't going to vote for him. And in the, um, you know, in the, in, the, in the race, you had to get a certain number of support from the ridings in Quebec. And uh, he, it wasn't there, and uh, he was never going to get it. Did he misread Quebec politics? I mean, these comments about, well, I was born in Montreal and, uh, you know, I went to visit Montreal along the way and I just don't understand why I couldn't move the needle. It's, it's very, very funny when he says that. I mean, it's almost like saying, well, I was, I was born in Canada and I, just, I, I visit there often. I, I mean, a lot of conservatives were making fun of him uh, that he was worse than Michael Ignatieff, that he was, you know, he rarely visited Canada. I mean, so he, even even English Canadians were making fun of him, and of course there was no chance that he was going to get Quebec on board as well. This was a this was a long shot to begin with. Um, he certainly did sign up a lot of young people, but you know nowhere near enough, and I think that's what he realized. How much does this help Maxime Bernier now? It's going to be mixed because a lot there's a lot. I mean, some of those uh, supporters of, of O'Leary will will not vote. Um, they had no interest in the Conservative Party other than supporting O'Leary. I think there will be some that may vote for Maxine Bernier, but not nearly as, as many as they think. So it's not a huge win. It's a win for Bernier because it puts him in the limelight. It, it, it really makes people think that he's the front runner. I don't know how many votes he'll get out of this. Is Bernier's command of English a problem, Fred? No, I don't think so. I think he's worked very hard to, to learn English. He's worked very hard to uh, sort of brand himself as almost a, uh, an Albertan. He loves to tell people how he's, he has Albertan politics, Albertan policies. Um, he understands their problems. He wants to be thought of as a Westerner almost. So I think people will accept um, him even with his, uh, his poor English. It's definitely getting better. 
We know how politics works in this country, often very regionalized. I've been speaking to uh, commentators from Alberta. You know, I mean, if we're going to be honest, that there is still a dislike in certain quarters, particularly in Alberta, for all things Quebec. So does that hurt, Bernier? I, I don't think it will. Um, and again, you're right about, you know, people are sometimes suspicious or, you know, of, of Quebecers, but... I, Bernie's done the work. He's traveled across the country. I, I think that his low tax policies, his 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 policies on smaller government, will appeal to Alberta conservatives. And there's nobody else for them to go to. So I think that uh, he'll be fine. One final thing, Fred. Based on political history, in which Canadian governments do tend to be reelected, and the continued popularity of Justin Trudeau, the odds would seem to be in favor of him winning a second term. Does that factor into this race, where perhaps other contenders are keeping their powder dry, thinking that they don't necessarily want to win this and become leader of the opposition? I think so. Because I think that's one of the reasons why Jason Kenney decided to go to Alberta. I think he decided he'll sit one election out, go to Alberta, perhaps become premier, and then come back and take over the party. I think if Bernier is the leader, he's going to have a tough time, because I don't know whether Canadians are ready for a libertarian prime minister. I don't know if they're ready for somebody to really dismantle government, dismantle so many programs. Um, I think it's going to be a very, very hard sell uh, across the country. Fred Litwin joining us from Ottawa, the author of the book Conservative Confidential, Inside the Fabulous Blue Tent. You're listening to Viewpoints, the podcast on iTunes, smart radio covering top stories of the week, plus fun radio to get you talking. You'll find it all right here. Now, let's get back to the show. And you're listening to Viewpoints. Todd Vanderheaten here with you. Final weekend of April. Great to have you along for the ride. Reporters Without Borders released their press freedom rankings earlier this week, and it was not good news for Canada. Despite what you might think about our country, our democracy, our openness, and freedom of the press, in fact, Canada dropped a number of spots. We dropped 14 spots, in fact, in the past two years. Now we are at number 22 on the rankings. We were at number 18 last year. And two years ago, we were at number eight. So what is going on here? What's at stake? And how significant is this, actually? Tom Hennifer is my guest. He is the executive director of Canadian Journalists for Free Expression, joining us this weekend from Toronto. Tom, great to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Are you surprised by this ranking? No, uh, no, unfortunately, I'm not. Um, We work very closely with RSF and... uh, I had actually been talking to them and saying that, you know, guys, things are getting pretty bad in Canada. Um, so it was it's something that I actually was advocating for that they drop us because I thought that we were kind of artificially high before. You know, when you have a situation where our access information system is a total joke, we have no whistleblower protection uh, whatsoever. We've got we've just had three and now we still have two journalists uh, facing jail time. And uh, we have eight journalists who have been confirmed being spied on in, uh, in Quebec. <laughs> How could we be any higher than 22nd place? For people who don't work in the media, when we talk about press freedom, what does that actually mean, Tom? It means the ability to have a robust, free press that is free from government interference, um, that is free from overbroad surveillance, that is able to disseminate Uh, information to the public that is crucial for informing them about our democracy. The journalists are the fourth estate. They are 
a pillar of our democracy, and they need to be able to inform Canadians in order for Canada to function as a country. Um, and when you have things like, uh, you know, uh, journalists being forced to turn over their notes by police, uh, journalists being arrested for trespassing just because they're covering a protest and the protest goes on to uh, 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 crown land, uh, or when you have them being spied on, it causes sources to dry up. They won't talk to journalists because they're afraid that uh, all of their information, that they, whatever information they give them uh, won't be secure and that it'll just wind up in the arms of law enforcement. It makes journalists afraid to speak out, to take risks um, because they're, uh, they could be prosecuted for it. Uh, it's, it's extremely, extremely bad for our country, and it's putting us on a dangerous path. The Heritage Minister, Melanie Jolie, in the Trudeau government uh, was asked about this this week, and she says she's, quote, extremely concerned, Tom, uh, to see that Canada has fallen in the rankings when it comes to press freedom uh, down to the 22nd place. Uh, What do you make of that reaction? I was actually, funnily enough, at the conference uh, where she said that. Um, And, you know, it's that's what we keep hearing from the Liberals. They're concerned. They're consulting. They're they're monitoring it there, but they're not taking any action. Uh, there has been there are such simple, easy legislative fixes for these things. All they need to do, they can pass the press shield law that, uh, that just passed in the Senate. It is essentially purely up to Justin Trudeau, whether that passes in the House or not. All he needs to do is say, yes, pass it and it'll pass because uh, they have a majority government. Um, they can. Uh, they uh, can reform the access to information system. They have Suzanne Legault, the information commissioner, has laid out all the legislative changes that need to happen uh, in order for that to happen. Simple legislative fix wouldn't cost any money, would save money in the long term. Uh, but the, and they need to reform the national uh, our national security apparatus. Now, that's the one thing where they do seem to be taking action on it because uh, they've done the consultations and there's new legislation coming. But the fact that they're ignoring these other issues, you know, she, she says she she's concerned those words ring extremely hollow. It doesn't matter if you're concerned. They need to do something to fix this problem in Canada because the free press is literally slipping away. I want to ask you, Tom, about the issue of national security and Canada's spy agencies. There's CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service, and there's another one called the Communications Security Establishment, the CSE. Both of these are part of the national security apparatus. But in terms of oversight, the media's ability to figure out what they're actually doing, what do we know, Tom? Yeah, so CSIS is kind of like the CIA um, CSE is, is like another government part of Homeland Security in the United States, very similar agencies. Um, but the difference is that in every other Western democracy in the world, they, there is parliamentary oversight of their spy agencies. In the U.S., Congress knows what the CIA is doing. In Canada, Parliament does not know what the, our, our spy agencies are doing. The commissioner in charge of, uh, of CSE, Security Establishment, uh, or, sorry, yeah, Canada, Security Establishment Canada uh, said that he can't say whether their agents are actually abiding by the law or not because he doesn't have access to enough information. The agencies are acting with complete impunity. This is a huge, huge problem. We need meaningful oversight in order to prevent them from wrongdoing. I mean, look at the, the RCMP in the 1970s. CSIS was created because the RCMP was abusing its powers. You know, police officers were spying on girlfriends, spying on politicians like Tommy Douglas. 
And as a result of that, they took away these powers and gave it to CSIS. But then under Bill C-51, they gave all the powers that the RCMP had in the 1970s that they were abusing back to CSIS. So now we're in the same, they have the same opportunity to cause these problems, and there's no one holding them to account. So they could be spying on every Canadian. Uh, you know, they could be uh, stalking their ex-girlfriends, just like the RCMP did in the 70s. And there's no way for the public to know, and there's no... Uh, there's no way for that to be prevented from happening at the moment. But a simple legislative fix, introducing an oversight committee, reining in those powers, it's, it's, a, it's very easy to do. It just takes a political will to do it. Tom Hennifer is my guest. He's with Canadian Journalists for Free Expression. And we're talking about our country falling down in the rankings when it comes to press freedom. Reporters Without Borders came out with their list this week. And Canada is now in 22nd place. We've dropped from 8th to 22nd in just... Two years. You know, it's interesting because I was an investigative journalist, Tom, for about five years in Montreal locally for CTV. And I did this five-part series about the CSE because I found it really fascinating. Communication security establishment, they got their headquarters in Ottawa, and no one had ever heard about them. No one knew what they were doing. They had a huge budget after 9-11. So we went to Ottawa, and after, you know, months of trying to get access, they let me inside their building. I saw these super cray computers, and they work very closely with the Americans and the Brits and the Australians and New Zealand as well. I just wonder whether in our country we are too trusting of government. And it's something that goes back into our DNA of where the country was founded, where we came from. And and so Canadians are not necessarily all that worked up over this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, in the United States, they have a a very healthy distrust of government. And I think that that comes from the founding myth of that country um, versus versus in Canada, where we tend to really trust the government. But that trust is misplaced. Uh, There have been... Uh, evidence of just of abuse upon abuse. I mean, these eight journalists being spied on in Montreal, completely outrageous. The charges laid against uh, Ben Maku and uh, Justin Brake, the two reporters who are facing jail term, uh, jail time, also completely outrageous. Uh, it's 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 as soon as someone says national security, people's brains just shut down in this country, and that's a real problem. We need to bring you know. Uh, a more robust, nuanced debate onto these issues. And I think really the press has failed to inform Canadians on these issues um, because, as you say, we're still too trusting and we should not be because the government has not earned our trust in any of these areas. I know that you were a journalist for a long time, and I've been working in the media for about 20 years. There have been accusations, you know, going back decades, that the media in our country are just too cozy, Tom, with government and big business and the police. And and that because we are a small country population-wise, there's a lot of sort of incestuousness that goes back and forth. Is that a fair criticism? I think that's an extremely fair criticism. I've found that you know, we do not have as nearly as adversarial relationship between the press and the government and industry in Canada as, as our uh, colleagues in the United States or in Great Britain uh, do. You know, you, you speak to an individual journalist, you know, they, they do their job. They do good work. But when you look at the industry as a whole, yeah, things are too cozy. I mean, there's all kinds of journalists who will wind, who, you know, might be working for the CDC and then they go wind up working for a cabinet minister or go work for a lobbying firm. Uh, uh, or go work in the mining industry, and that might be weeks after they had just been covering the mining industry. There is a coziness that is really frightening. And I think too often uh, the the legacy mainstream media in this country is a bastion for the status quo, and that is not what they are meant to be. Journalists are advocates for the truth. That is what we are supposed to do. 
to put the truth in front of the public so the public can make up their minds. Not to be boosters of government, not to be boosters of business, but to be boosters of the truth. And I think that sometimes we've forgotten that in Canada. Tom Hennifer, my guest, Canadian journalist for free expression, talking about our country dropping in the rankings when it comes to press freedom from eighth place in 2015 down to number 22. This is Viewpoints, great guests and great conversations from politics to pop culture, from technology to geek culture. We do smart radio and fun radio right here. Tune in every week to the iTunes podcast for the best segments from our nationally syndicated weekend radio show. Brutal story out of Chechnya in southern Russia. Hundreds of gay men being hunted down, tortured, forced to flee for their lives. In some cases, their own families turning on them and disowning them. It's a campaign of terror in a traditionally Muslim republic where the rules of law and equal rights simply do not apply to the LGBT community. They've lived long in fear, living a life of lies, really hiding their true identities in a deeply conservative and homophobic society. But now this is a deadly turn as they're being rounded up and in some cases even executed. This story was first reported on by a Russian investigative newspaper now it's been picked up by the media worldwide, the international community condemning it, the West anyway, from Canada, the United States, Europe, even human rights groups like Amnesty, all calling on the Russian government to do something, anything about it. The Russian government of Vladimir Putin doesn't seem to believe the stories or care very much. And as for the government in Chechnya itself, in a ridiculous bit of homophobic propaganda, says there is no story here because there are no gay people in the republic, which, by the way, has a population of 1.4 million people. One Canadian group is doing something about it, though, Rainbow Railroad, trying to get some of these people to safety and raise awareness about this story. They're working with the gay community in Russia to figure out a solution to what is happening. Kamali Powell is my guest. He's the executive director of Rainbow Railroad, and he's standing by now. Kamali, how bad is the situation in Chechnya for the LGBT community? I mean, it's pretty bad. Um, you know, the Russian LGBT network is the organization that's been the point people. They've been really doing some amazing work. Uh, but they are a small group of individuals um, that are responding specifically to this crisis uh, with limited capacity. So um, I'm um, headed to Moscow um, in the coming days to directly assess the situation. Uh, but um, we're talking about people who are fleeing with a backpack um, with whatever they can round up at the mid, at, at the time because um, from reports we've heard people have been fleeing um, because someone's at the door ready to ransack their home so that's the that's the immediacy of the situation there and uh, you know there are multiple people to um, there's three of these safe houses that um, I could report on um, that are holding people up in safety. It also seems that there are sting operations going on, traps that are being laid for gay men in Chechnya, whereby the authorities are intentionally trying to lure them out of hiding in order to arrest them and detain them. That's right. One of the some of the methods that have been reported is using social media, so arranging uh, meetings uh, of individuals under hacking people's accounts and arranging meetings with with friends, uh, and then using those mechanisms to round people up. So it's really uh, really cruel, uh, horrific tactics um, used uh, to target a group. 
You mentioned you're going to Russia, and of course the country itself has a very bad reputation when it comes to LGBT rights. Are you planning to engage in some sort of a dialogue with the government, or at least try to when you're there? Um, we're we're there to help individuals who need safety, and that's that's our focus. Um, you know, we are um, in discussions with the Canadian government to see what Canada can do to uh, facilitate visas for individuals. Um, of course, we call, we stand by our allies, allies like Amnesty International, who you mentioned, uh, calling on action in relation to um, the Kremlin. But um, we have to stay focused on those people that need our help. There are 35 people who have said they want to leave Russia uh, after escaping Chechnya. Um, and this is a situation where we uh, want to make sure that they understand what that means. Um, this is a forced migration. And so when people come to us for help, they've given some thought to why they need to leave and their stories of persecution. These individuals are just processing um, that the fact that if they leave, they probably won't be able to return. Uh, and, you know, they love their country. They were just living their lives before this happened. And because this is a very conservative Islamic traditional society, we are hearing stories in which their own families turn against them, turn them in, reject them, beat them, in some cases maybe even kill them. Yeah, you've heard the term honor killings. Um, you know, the part of the the other part of the conversation of, of the quote you mentioned is is not just about these people don't exist, is that if they did exist, that, you know, that family members would take care of the situation, i.e., kill. Um, so uh, that's that's this is that's what is fa- these people are facing, um, and you're you're seeing it trickle. Um, there, are, you know, the reports of Chechnya's even in um, other areas um, because the community is so small. You find individuals, even not even in Russia, who are who are um, facing dangerous situations. We're talking to Kamali Powell on the line. He's with Rainbow Railroad. This is a LGBT group in Canada that seeks to help people in countries around the world from the gay and lesbian community, trans community, who are being persecuted. Get them the help they need, which in some cases means getting them out of those countries and bringing them to Canada. Is it possible some of these people from Chechnya, Kamali, will end up in our country? That's my hope. That's my hope. This is a real important opportunity for Canada to take action. Uh, everyone around the world applauded the prime minister when he uh, boldly stated after um, the president of the United States uh, proposed a travel ban that Canada welcomes refugees. Um, we also know that Canada has, um, as you know, um, named a special advisor on LGBTQ issues um, that um, Randy Boisano and the minister have made statements condemning the action and once again reiterated that Canada is welcome to refugees. So now it's a moment It's a moment of action. Um, this is a tremendous opportunity for Canada to show the world that uh, we are indeed a leader here. Um, and of course, it will directly help save lives. Your organization keeps track of the situation in many countries around the world, whether it's the Middle East or Africa or Asia, you name it. This situation in Russia, where would you put it on sort of the scale of, of extreme situations? 
Well, we've never seen anything like it. We've never seen anything quite like this in our time where so many people were rounded up at once. I think we're all, we're all digesting the horror of it. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's really important to know that this stuff happens quietly without media attention to people all over the world every day. Um, there's a rep- there was a report of raids in Iran just recently that, um, you know, unfortunately did not get as much attention uh, as um, the the situation in Chechnya. But I think while it's heartening that there's such a international response, it's really important to understand that there are 73 countries uh, reported this year that have anti-gay laws on the books. That, that, and what that does is stigmatizes people around the world. The majority of the people that we help are from the Caribbean, um, in Jamaica, um, which you know has a long reputation of being one of the most homophobic places on earth. So there are dangerous situations that people face every day. We received over 700 requests last year. The stories are heartbreaking. They're um, real details of persecution. I've seen firsthand someone show me scars from their second acid attack while in Jamaica. Um, it, it, we don't, you know, we don't experience that in Canada. We can't imagine what it's like for someone to be living homeless and having a group of people carry a vat of acid to attack them just because they're gay. Well, as a journalist myself and a member of the community, I really wanted to get this story on. And you and I spoke on CTV earlier this week. I posted our interview up on social media. It's been viewed by about 10,000 people. I'm curious what people listening, Kamali, to us right now can do if they want to help. Where can they go? So people could do a couple of things. They can um, go to www.rainbowrailroad.ca and make a contribution um, as part of our efforts to support the people leaving um, Russia who, who fled Chechnya. We're not only providing direct assistance to the individuals, but we've also, it's really important to me that we support the Russian LGBT network as well, so um, funds can be designated to that group. They are uh, just a small group of people run, uh, working around the clock to help people. So those are two concrete actions that people can do. Kamali Powell, the executive director of Rainbow Railroad. Again, that website, rainbowrailroad.ca. All right, we'll get back to the program in a moment, but here's a way for you to contact us. You can email us, viewpoints at bellmedia.ca, viewpoints at bellmedia.ca, and you can connect with me personally on social media. Find me on Instagram and Twitter. My handle for both is at ToddCTV. You're listening to Viewpoints, smart radio, fun radio, radio to get you talking, and radio to get you thinking as well. I'm Todd Vander Hayden. Great to have you with us. It's final weekend of April. Trump, 100 days. Trump, 100 nights. Hard to think that we actually got here. The Donald, the commander-in-chief. I was re-watching footage in the last day or so of the inauguration from back in January. I was actually in Washington, D.C. on assignment for CTV News to cover it. And in some ways, it still kind of feels a bit surreal that a reality TV host, a businessman from Manhattan, seen by some as a tacky joke, trashy nouveau riche, snake oil salesman, is now the so-called leader of the free world. Others are very happy about this fact. They believe he will bring the change necessary not only to Washington, but all of America's allies around the world. The truth, 
as always, might be stranger than fiction. So, how is he done in these first 100 days? What are the wins and what are the losses? My guest on the line in Washington, Corey Crowley, Republican strategist. Corey, what do you think? Well, I think that a lot of what you just said right there in that intro is absolutely right. And most people, even when I listen to the to the news uh, and they say President Trump, I think to myself, my God, it really is real. And sometimes it hits you as maybe it isn't. But then you wake up from your crazy dream and you find out it's the truth. Um, <laughs> look, he's had a he's had a difficult first hundred days, uh, I think, by any measure. Uh, his biggest accomplishment, obviously, the Supreme Court. Uh, getting a, a conservative nominated to the court to fill that seat is something that Republicans held out for for over a year. And many Republicans who didn't want to support Donald Trump, didn't support him in the primary, were even never Trumpers, that uh, came along and, and voted for him in November just for that Supreme Court seat because those folks who serve on the Supreme Court often serve decades and they last with legacies far longer and greater than presidents. So uh, people came on board, and I think that's a huge win for the first 100 days. He's obviously had a lot of failures as well, uh, a lot of them by his own creation, mostly by his own tweeting and name-calling and inability to find consensus with Congress. But I think the the one thing people will walk away with from this first 100 days is that Supreme Court nomination. So speaking of that, I mean, going into this, we knew he was unpredictable. We knew he was anti-establishment, promised to drain the swamp and really shake the heck out of things. Has the 100 days proven that or are you at all surprised over how it's unfolded? I think he shaked the heck out of people, but maybe more out of their sensibilities than out of their actual expectations. He He's come in here and hasn't really changed his behavior at all from the campaign. Still tweets, still called uh, Senator Warren Pocahontas. I mean, people thought that this name-calling little Marco and all of this would end when he became president, but he still has has held on to it. It's still his brand, and I think it's proven a lot of people right that this is really who Donald Trump is at his core. Uh, but by the same token, I think that he has come to realize that the presidency is something greater than himself, and it's more difficult and challenging than he thought it was going to be, and that he needs to surround himself with people who understand not just the game, but the players. Because at the end of the day, all of Washington and most of international politics as well is about relationship. It's not just about uh, understanding where to move a chess player on the board, but it's understanding how your opponent is thinking and being one move ahead of him. And Donald Trump hasn't been able to accomplish that yet, but I think he's now starting to realize he needs to. Corey Crowley is my guest, a Republican strategist. It's interesting because on Thursday he said, you know, this is a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. And, you know, some people like sort of did a double take when they heard that because, of course, the president of the United States, uh, that's a pretty uh, enormous job. Do you think he thought, Corey, that it was going to be more of like a figurehead sort of thing, sort of like, a, I don't know, a CEO of a company where he has all of the people that kind of run the day to day operations and he sort of makes just the big picture vision things? I, I do believe that that's what he thought, and and we know that from how some of his conversations went with folks he wanted to be his VP and ultimately with Mike Pence, who became his VP, was that you could run the day-to-day, you can be the big policy guy, you can be the details person, and I'll just I'll be the big picture, the figurehead, as you say, the kind of ceremonial figure. But quickly, I think he's come to realize that's just not the way the Constitution of the United States is written. 
The power is vested in the presidency, and you can surround yourself with all the most wonderful people. But at the end of the day, you have to make the tough decisions. You have to make the calls. People expect it of you. The hours are rigorous. Everybody wants a minute of your time. Uh, sometimes when you need a vote out of Congress, the highest level surrogate, whether it's one of his children or the vice president, don't suffice. A member of Congress might just want to get a guarantee or a promise or a favor from the president himself. And those are calls nobody else can make. And I think also, I don't believe he understood just the stresses of the job. You know, when you think about the decision he had to make the other day to launch that missile strike into Syria, uh, that kills human beings. And I, I think that all seems easy and and kind of coy when you're on the campaign trail. But when you get in there and you're the one who has to make those decisions and deal with those tough realities that you're now responsible for the death of people, whether they were bad people or not, uh, that's tough. We're talking about Trump, the first 100 days. Corey Crowley, my guest, Republican strategist. So we give him a win in terms of his nomination to the Supreme Court. Neil Gorsuch is now sitting on the court. Do we give him a lose on Obamacare, trying to repeal and replace the hallmark, the signature achievement domestically of President Obama? He said he was going to get rid of that. That's not happened. It's a huge loss for him. That is something that Republican, not just for him, but for the Republican Party in, in total, this is something that should have been a slam dunk, ready and prepared out of the gate from the first minute. Uh, you know, lots of people, when they run for president, promise on my first day in office, I'll do this and that. And it's way more than they could ever accomplish. But this should have been one of those that in the first few weeks, Republicans should have been able to deliver on. We've been promising this to the base for more than half a decade now. And to not be able to accomplish it is a total failure, not just of the Republicans to come together, but of presidential leadership, because this is something that does take the bully pulpit of the presidency to accomplish, and Trump doesn't know how to use it. And so I think uh, you have to look quite a ways back in history to find a president who's really had no legislative accomplishments in his first hundred days. I mean, if, if you think about it, he, there's been no major piece of legislation he signed, lots of executive orders, more than 30, but that's easy. Anybody in the White House can do that, and you can word them however you feel like it. But uh, to not have any legislative accomplishments is a real failure. What about build that wall? Build that wall. I mean, there is yeah. still no wall. The, the whole issue of immigration, again, he's been thwarted by a number of judges, not able to crack down as he wants to. So is that is that a failure? It's it, That's a failure as well. You know, first, the ban that he tried to put in place that he himself just this week called the ban again, uh, even after saying it wasn't a ban. That's been struck down by the courts. And then the failure of Congress to give him any money for a border wall in this latest budget deal. I mean, that should have been a no-brainer, at least to kick up something, uh, some startup funds, if you will. You know, the first 50, 100 million to get the first uh, phases of the contracting or the proposals put in place uh, should have been easy. But he can't he can't accomplish it because he has no relationship with Congress and because his vice president's being pulled too many directions. He can't send Mike Pence to the Hill every day because Mike Pence is also busy playing the role of presidential diplomat abroad. And and that's a tough reality that Donald Trump needs to figure out how he can better build bridges personally with Congress and go up there and start asking them to do this stuff himself or he's not going to accomplish anything in the next three and a half years. If you had to give him a letter grade just quickly, what would it be? Well, uh, I, 
I'm being kind of generous with him right now because I think that the people mostly uh, whose opinion counts right now are the Republican base. Those are the ones you need to keep happy in your first hundred days. And I think in that sense, the Supreme Court was an overriding, uh, overshadowing victory. And so I, I give him a B. Republican strategist Corey Crowley in Washington. You're listening to Viewpoints, the podcast on iTunes, smart radio covering top stories of the week, plus fun radio to get you talking. You'll find it all right here. Now, let's get back to the show. And good to have you here on the program. Todd Vander Hayden with you. It's a show that's getting a lot of buzz. Netflix, the streaming video service, once again making headlines because of it. This time, the show 13 Reasons Why, which debuted this month. You might have heard about it. It's all about teen suicide, specifically a teenage girl who kills herself. But before she commits suicide, she sends audio cassettes to 13 people at her school who she blames for pushing her over the edge, pushing her to take her own life. Now, the show is triggering all sorts of reactions. There are those who say it is powerful and important, taking a serious issue like teen suicide and getting people to watch it and then talk about it. Others say not so fast. They feel Netflix is exploiting the issue of teen suicide and teen bullying for its own gain, that it's an inappropriate topic to use for a show, and that Netflix should not be heralded, but rather criticized over 13 reasons why. My guest on the line from Hamilton, Ontario, is Dr. Shirley Steinberg. She is a youth studies professor with the University of Calgary, one of the only youth studies professors in our country, and she's standing by with her take on 13 reasons why. What do you think? Well, I don't think Netflix or any corporation that produces media does anything for anyone except for profits. So the idea that Netflix would produce a show to get people talking about suicide is quite absurd, I think. And what concerns you the most about this show, Shirley? I think it scares me. Um, I'll tell you a couple of reasons. Number one is that, and I'll just talk about Canada, but it really does apply mostly to, you know, to North America and anybody else who's watching this. But in our country, only one province, the province of Quebec, actually has media literacy in its courses that is mandated. Consequently, the other 10 provinces and territories do not have any conversation about how to absorb media with kids. That's number one. Number two, teen suicide is the second highest rate of suicide in Canada. 25% of teens that die, die from taking their own lives. This is epidemic. This is a very scary, scary thought. And number three, this show is not creating a dialogue. It's creating a romanticization, a, a romance about how cool it is and how much attention one gets when one commits suicide. Is that the message you think that some teens who may be at risk will take away? I do. I do, Todd. And I'm, I'm not one to just react to media and say, this game is going to make you go do this, or this book is going to make you go do this. But I think the fact, number one, that it's nine or that it's 13 episodes, that's a long time. So that's 13 weeks of sustained re-embedding of what the kid has learned. Now, the, the, the character, Hannah, is, is a clear narcissist and psycho. I mean, this little girl that they try to make so sweet, so cute, so vulnerable... She's clearly a narcissist. She, she's all in this for herself. It sets up suicide as a challenge, as a game. And hey, if I'm going to take my own life, I'm in charge all the way. That's romantic to many kids. It reminds me of what um, the, the Virgin Suicides did a couple of decades ago. And it, it does 
dance with the idea that if you're depressed, if you're sad, if your world is falling apart, this is a really cool way to go. And look how much people are going to talk about me when I'm gone. Well, full disclosure, Shirley, I, like a lot of people listening, no doubt, was bullied in high school. I wasn't cool. I wasn't in the in crowd. I was targeted. And it was just kind of part of growing up. We didn't talk about it as much. Nowadays, it is very much in the public conversation. And we hear lots of stories about it. Things have changed a lot since back in the 80s. Is it possible that a show like 13 Reasons Why at least fosters a conversation about teen bullying and potentially teen suicide? In other words, we weren't talking about it before. Now we are. Now it's on Netflix. Yeah, but not really. Number, you know, I don't know what it is with my numbers today. We have always had bullying and we've always talked about it and there's been you know since we can remember when we were kids and i also was bullied and i think it's because we're brilliant and smart and that's probably why we were bullied and, <laughs> and scintillating personalities but when you are bullied um for the most part you come out of it you might be bruised and yes some bullies become bullies themselves and there are always problems but i don't know that the increase of bullying has has gotten worse the trouble is it's gotten more insidious and there is an ability for girls to do it whereas girls were not a kind of had the propensity so much for bullying they were mean girls but they certainly weren't uh the aggressors as much as they are on the internet now that given once again we have to examine what is the power of the internet and certainly bullying has gone on the internet but how do we know how many kids have died by their own hand because of bullying as compared to how many did in earlier days. There's not been a lot of studies on that. What about people who might be bullies or potential bullies or currently bullying and they see a show like 13 Reasons Why, will they rethink their actions? No. No. I think the point of bullying is very much a sociopathic notion. And when you have a sociopath, you're not going to really consider what the ramifications are. I don't think, I don't think bullies sort of rethink what they're doing. They get off on doing what they're doing, and they're also very damaged people. And this is what's not happening in a conversation about this show. And it reminds me of Dirty Little Liars, which is, was just incredibly popular. And to listen to the, the tweens, the 10 to 13-year-olds and their obsession with how girls and murder manifested itself and the ease in which dead bodies kept showing up. And now we see this, and I heard first about this show um, a while ago from a 12-year-old, not from an adult, not from my students, but from a 12-year-old who said, have you seen this show? And I think that that, first of all, I don't want to really want to be talking about suicide with 12-year-olds. I think it puts things in people's heads. But most importantly, Hannah is, is like this princess who's got this whole thing together. She's so solid and has got it together. And she's torturing so many people by doing this. And that could really go into the hands of some kid that really is disturbed and, and go too far. And I'm not saying somebody's going to imitate this. But I'm saying I don't think there's a sincere conversation about this. I think it's shock value. I think Netflix has really played a hand that I don't like because I've, I've always liked Netflix. I thought it was pretty responsible. I don't like this. I, I think it's unnecessary. If you're going to have a kid kill themselves, make them in college. I really don't think we needed to deal with young kids with this.
13 Reasons Why is what we're talking about here, a Netflix show that debuted this month. It's all about teen suicide, and my guest is Dr. Shirley Steinberg. She's a youth studies professor at the University of Calgary. She's joining us this weekend, though, from Hamilton. You mentioned something at the beginning about media literacy and how Quebec is the only province in Canada that actually has media literacy courses in school. What are those courses about? What are they trying to do for kids? Well, they're trying to to create a discussion about what we see and what we hear and what we know, and the idea of how image affects us, like everything from photography to a magazine to a TV show or movie. And is that image sincere? What has been the viewpoint of the camera person? How did the director create this this feeling? Like, what is it that media does to us that is not reality? And then to look at reality and to say, you know, how do we have this conversation? It also talks about trends and how emphasis is brought on something. So right now, suicide is trending according to the teen, what the teens talk about. And that idea that what we have to keep our eye on is what youth are talking about and what is the counterpoint to it. And we don't have that counterpoint. And we very rarely ever talk about teen suicide schools unless there's a suicide. And I think that that's very clear in the show is that, 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 that I think it's the first episode is very clear in how uncomfortable and scared kids are about teen suicide. One of the one things that is not really mentioned is it's because most teens have once or twice in their lives played with this idea because it's just how the mind works. It's not like there's pathological teens running around, but, it, but it's something kids think about. And to make something so terribly scary and detrimental to an entire society, so common as it's just on a TV show without parents really knowing what it is, that, that's a little frightening too. Dr. Shirley Steinberg joining us on Viewpoints with her take on 13 Reasons Why, Netflix's new show. It's getting a lot of buzz, both good and bad. This is Viewpoints, great guests and great conversations from politics to pop culture, from technology to geek culture. We do smart radio and fun radio right here. Tune in every week to the iTunes podcast for the best segments from our nationally syndicated weekend radio show. And welcome back to the show. You are listening to Viewpoints. Todd Vanderheaten here with you. Canada's biggest annual documentary film festival, known as Hot Docs, is now underway. It features really some of the best films from around the world and from right here in Canada as well. One of the films that caught our eye here on the show is one about mermaids. That's right, mermaids, or more specifically, about women who are passionate and obsessed with mermaids. They've made mermaids part of their lives, the mermaid mythology deep within them. They talk of the Mer family and their Mer sisters. They put on mermaid costumes. They take lessons. They swim as mermaids. It's fascinating, maybe a little bizarre, eccentric, very interesting, and full of characters who bring this love of mermaids to life with each swoosh of their tail, you might say. The film is debuting at Hot Docs, and its director, Ali Weinstein, is on the line with us. Ali, thanks for your time. Hi, thank you for having me. Why mermaids? Well, I was obsessed with mermaids when I was a kid, which I think is a pretty common thing for young girls and some young boys, too. And when I learned about this whole mermaid community, this phenomenon that seems to be getting larger, a couple of years ago, I, I started looking around. I went down to Murfest, 
which is this mermaid convention that happens every year. And I met some people in the community and heard their stories and realized that there was something here that that a lot of the people who do this uh, choose to do it because they sort of feel this transformation when they put on their tail, and it means so much to them. Um, and I just thought it would be a really fascinating subject. I was I just wanted to explore what this myth meant to all of these people. It is really interesting what happens when they dress up, when they put on the tail, as you're saying, this this notion of healing or catharsis, a transformation as well. What's going on there? It's a good question. And I mean, to be perfectly honest, I don't know if I have a concrete answer, but I think that there is some form of getting to escape into another world. Um, and the, the mermaid, the figure of the mermaid, is so universally known. When I started researching this film, I realized for the first time just how global a mythology this is. There's mermaid myths from all over the world. And, and there's always this commonality about the mermaid or the female water goddess. She's always this sort of strong, independent, very free figure. And yet also she often is portrayed as being lonely or sad at times. And sometimes there's stories of unrequited love, like in the little mermaid. And I think that there's something about this, this myth where people want to be like her and be strong, but they also can relate to her because she has these human qualities and because there's a bit of suffering there sometimes. And so I think getting to actually become that character is very profound for people when they embody it with the tale. But it is, it's a bit mysterious how that works. I think it's a very physical transformation, and maybe you have to wear a tail yourself to find out. <laughs> Putting this film together, Mermaids, you had an opportunity to meet some of these women. And what are they like? Um, well, they're... Okay, first of all, going to Murfest, that convention I talked about, it was, I've just never felt so welcomed in my life. It was amazing how many people there were there from so many different backgrounds, so many different shapes and sizes and ages and genders. And, and there was just so much acceptance. Immediately, my producer, Caitlin Durlach, and I, who went down there, we were welcomed with open arms. And it just felt, honestly, it just felt like this incredible family that we had walked into. And that feeling of acceptance I think also plays a big role in why why this community is so strong because for a lot of the women who do it and, and men too, um, there's there's this merch sisterhood, this this commonality that they share and and I think that acceptance goes a long way for them. Ali Weinstein is my guest. She is the director of the film Mermaids. It's a new documentary. It's being shown, debuting at Hot Docs, Canada's premier documentary film festival, which is now underway. Did you succeed in what you set out to do, putting this film together, putting this documentary about this really interesting subculture? <laughs> oh, God, that's a hard question. I, uh, I hope so. I know that I met some amazing mermaids along the way, and I'm happy with how their stories came out on screen, and I hope that audiences have a fun time and enjoy the film. You mentioned that this is something that goes back to you when you were a little girl and the whole mermaid culture. Do you yeah. still do you still do it yourself, Allie? Um, you know, I have always been a swimmer, and as a teenager, I was a competitive synchronized swimmer because of my love for the water. And it's funny, I, I recently rejoined an adult synchronized swimming team 
simply because of making this film and seeing how happy these women were in my movie when they got into the water and were immersed in the water. And, and it inspired me to go back to my roots in swimming. However, I don't normally wear a tail. <laughs> you know, you you talked about this Mer community, and it, it's really quite fascinating because not only in the U.S., but across Canada and different cities nationwide, there are these Mer communities that exist where women and yeah. also men are welcome. They're invited to public pools and get together and dress up and put on the tails. That's right. Yeah, there's little pockets of this all over. One final question, Allie. For the women who are part of this documentary, did they feel that it was sort of a cathartic experience for them to share their stories with you and with the audience? Absolutely. Um, when we went to Murfest and then also we went to a mermaid theme park that's down in Florida where we interviewed many women who work there, um, people were clamoring to tell their stories to us and I think because it can be such a profound experience for them to wear the tail it was important to a lot of these people to to talk about it and to talk about what it does for them and so we had a really incredible experience having the opportunity to to give them that platform and to share their stories um, our subjects haven't actually seen the film yet because we want to share it with an audience with them. So I'm really excited <laughs> and nervous, too, to just see how they react to it. Allie Weinstein was my guest. She is the director of the film Mermaids. We're talking about the culture of mermaids here on the show. You can check out more, mermaiddocumentary.com, mermaiddocumentary.com. The film is debuting at Hot Docs, which is Canada's premier documentary film festival. And that's going to do it for us today here on the show. Thanks for listening to Viewpoints on iTunes. I'm Todd Vanderhayden. Our show producers, Matt Gilmore, Fernando Gelso, Tina Lullum, and Dave Simon. You can connect with me on social media, on Instagram and Twitter. Same handle for both, at ToddCTV. And you can catch me weekdays on television on CTV News Channel, which is CTV's 24-hour breaking news cable channel, 2 to 5 Eastern, 11 to 2 Pacific. We'll be back here again soon with more Viewpoints. And until then, take care of yourself.